to our practice is by providing guidance for some meditations that that allow us to sort of um, bring some of these rather heady, sometimes sort of abstract, uh, sometimes rather complex teachings into into sort of into our experience in ways that um, can be very productive. And in this particular case, the meditation really helps us cultivate and and develop a container for noticing these themes that we're talking about, how our attraction to sense pleasures emerges, the sorts of the way that selves become agents for desire, the way views emerge as part of this mix of uh, arising of experience and holding on to experience. Um, and it's a safe place. It's, uh, it's a place where a lot of learning can happen. It's also a place where um, some of the, uh, some of the way that can be quite wholesome and skillful of holding these things when they arise, we can experiment with and uh, make part of our lives. So let's, let's take ourselves into some meditation. We're going to do this in a, in a brief 15 minute meditation, and it's going to be just a little bit more analytic than uh, might, we might typically do. Sometimes we use this phrase analytic meditation to describe meditation where we're more we're just putting a little bit more effort into um, watching what comes up. And in this case, uh, I'll drop a couple pebbles into the ponds of our meditation with the expectation that some of the ripples that happen um, may, may be, uh, may be useful. So we can bring our eyes down. I'm going to do this with you. I'm going to do it together with us. Um, Bring our eyes down and bring our gaze inward. One thing we do when we sit in meditation is we, we develop an intention actually to refocus some of our, our interaction with wanting, with desire. And we do this in part by letting go of some of that visual um, world and bringing our focus of our attention into our inner world, our inner life, what's going on here and now as opposed to the there and then of, of our thoughts. We can bring some attention to the body, just noticing the body as it is in this space and bringing our body into a place of some balance, balancing our presence with a sense of ease, cultivating the relaxed alertness that is our sort of our meditative center. And then we can bring attention to the breath. We bring attention to the breath. Bring attention back to the breath over and over again. And when we do, we connect with qualities of the breath that are inherent in the breath. One of the beauties of this meditation practice is we don't really add anything new to experience. We pay attention to what's available and, and take advantage of what's available, what's offered. We connect with the breath. We connect with the in and out of the breath, the balance of the breath, the slow pace of the breath compared to the rather frantic pace of the mind and thought. Connect with the simplicity of the breath. Connect with the automaticity of the breath. 
The breath doesn't make demands on us. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to get better to be better breathers. We don't have to fret about the breath we took five breaths ago or five years ago. So bring ourselves to the extent we can this quickly into some, some place of spaciousness, of ease, as much as we can manage. Connecting with the breath and the body as we all know how to do. And then remembering the one of the essential instructions of our practice, which is when we become aware, as we undoubtedly will, that our attention has become snagged up in a current of emotion or a bodily sensation or a thought process, usually something very familiar, without hurry, without judgment, <clears throat> we tug our attention back to the breath back to here and now, reconnect with its wonderful, calming qualities. And into the still pool of the meditation, we'll just drop a couple pebbles. And first, we might bring some attention to the body's comfort. Just noticing how comfortable we are, maybe where there or where there's some discomfort. And recognize the body's constant need and want for comfort. The temperature of the room, the chair we're sitting in, the body's need for being fed, for being clothed, for being housed, for being protected, for being safe, for being whole. And in the meditation, when discomfort arises, we practice with letting it arise. Discomfort is a natural aspect of the body, of any embodied being. We actually invite it when we sit still for 20 or 30 minutes or an hour or a week-long retreat. Our practice points us towards developing greater comfort with our discomfort. In the meditation, discomfort arises and we, we notice it, we acknowledge it. We breathe with it, maybe. We soften our attitudes around it. Over time, we get better at letting discomfort happen, letting the wants and needs of the body arise, be noted, be noticed, be felt, be acknowledged.
So notice whether some comfort can come up around the inevitable discomfort that being in the body entails. So maybe into this awareness of body and its various discomforts and complaints. Into this cultivation of familiarity with those discomforts and comfort maybe with some of those discomforts. 
Maybe we can drop in another petal pebble. Sometimes in the meditation, the mind moves into daydream or the realm of fantasy. We may find some of our deepest yearnings or longings reflected in some of the little wispy daydreams that emerge in our meditation. When we notice that the mind has gone to these places before we return to the breath, just take note of the wanting that's going on there. And we'd like to be the outcomes we'd like to see come to us or others that we care about. Sometimes in these daydreams, we can, it's an opportunity to see ourselves and the way selves come up around what we would like most. We may feel a yearning for control when we're not in control. We may feel a longing for connection when connection eludes us. And we may feel some wholesome longing for well-being. And in the meditation, we can let these things emerge we can acknowledge them. We can hold them by returning to the breath. And we can let go. Kim. Well, thank you, David. That was quite lovely. So um, just in our last bit of time together, this is another opportunity to bring up any uh, questions or reflections, perhaps something that came up in the uh, meditation or something else about the teachings that we've covered today. Is anything on your mind at this point? And again, feel free to use the electronic hand 
Or if you're having trouble with that, I might be able to see your physical hand. Charles Lee. Oh, hi. Hi, everybody. Hello. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, uh, that practice. And it just really touched, you know, daydreaming mind is, is uh, often arises for me. And, uh, and it's, it's in fact so pleasurable. Um, it really is. Uh, I remember, you know, in the beginning of my meditation practice, it was, I found sitting to be quite easy because I thought, oh, I just get to sit and like, you know, let my mind go to like flights of fancy and, you know, go to outer space and like zoom around. And so, um, and this has been, you know, uh, uh, I started practicing a couple of years ago um, and I'm still, you know, still working with investigating that, that daydreaming mind. So, so thank you for giving me a little bit more, um, more instruction around. It's great. Thank you for the comment. Go ahead, David, if you had anything else. Oh, oh, I, I guess I would just, I, I didn't, but I would say thank you, Charles Lee. And yeah, you know, um, there's such great poignancy available in our daydreams because it's there that our, some of our deepest longings are expressed, including this wholesome longing for well-being. Um, we'll get to it. And again, to foreshadow, you know, in addition to pernicious views and ways of holding the teachings, there's the skillful use of self and of views. And uh, connecting with that well-being in, in the meditation that certainly that sometimes shows up in daydreams can really be a very useful part of practice and getting close to what we most want and value in life. Okay. And then I also see Steve's hand. Well, thank you. Uh, kind of relating to what Charles Lee said, but uh, David, I wanted to clarify something related to that. The last thing you said in the meditation, uh, letting things emerge, acknowledging them. And then I, actually was typing during the meditation because I wanted to get it down. You said, I think, hold by returning to the breath and then letting go. And the, the phrase, I may have gotten it wrong. Did you say hold by returning to the breath? And if so, what, do you, what did you mean by that? I may have said that. I was, I was meditating um, too. Um, yeah, I think, I think what's, what's, what I mean there, I think what's important is to respect what comes up in meditation. Sometimes we rush back to the breath. We have this sense of, oh, I, I've fallen off the breath. The more we do it, the more ease there can be with just sort of, oh, this has come up. I notice where I am. That acknowledgement, that touch of attention is actually critical to this practice. It's a way we show up for our experience and really are there with what's coming up. And I think, that returning to the breath, I'm not sure what I said, but I think doing that in a way that um, allows us to hold that experience with, without hurry um, is, you know, is an important part of that process of returning to the breath. Sometimes it seems like this practice is about holding on to the breath with your fingernails, but <laughs> the return to the breath is actually where we cultivate right. the direction of our attention. So that was right. what was intended. 
Thank you. Thank you. And I can just add a small comment that that meditation was recorded, and so we will be um, posting it. Uh, we'll send you the link to that probably in a couple of days. It will be before Tuesday, um, in case you wanted to catch it again. We also have a question in the chat, I noticed. Um, it says, I'm curious why the other monks try to change each other. And um, it's an interesting point. So, you know, why, why not just let everybody have their own view of the Dharma and, you know, it'll work that itself out somehow. So um, I think there are times where that might be wise, but there are also times where if somebody uh, has expressed something explicitly that may be doing harm to them, there can be a way of skillfully directing them back. And that's not outside of, um, that's not outside of Buddhist practice. There are suttas that say very clearly, if somebody is misrepresenting the Buddha, you should actually uh, say something about that. Now, how you do it is, of course, needs to be skillful. But um, this appears in other suttas, such as the beginning of Diga Nikaya 1, if you're looking for another reference. So um, that's an aspect of practice that we'll probably get to talk about more as as the course unfolds. We're getting close to the end, and I want to give Ying a chance to say goodbye to us. But um, Debbie, your hand is up if you have something. I was the curious person. And it comes to me after I recently retired from teaching after 38 years. And I found that to build community in our classroom, I really encouraged the children to we set up standards of how we wanted to be as in a community. And that I encouraged the children not to tell on each other <laughs> and that I would be watching. I'm there. I was not that I'm a Buddha, but... I could help skillfully guide the child who is struggling away from what the impact of their actions in the classroom. And um, that's what I was kind of irritated. I'm, this is the first sutta I've ever read. So (laughs) I was just curious why they were all talking about and going back to the Buddha and the Buddha didn't just go, leave him be, leave him be. So that's why the question. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's, um, Oh, that's right. Yes, you wrote the chat question. So um, it's an interesting question. So it does say explicitly that he's bringing harm and suffering on himself by misrepresenting. So it is compassionate to stop somebody from harming themselves. And this part about tattling or not, um, there are suttas where they do say that they try to convince him first, and then they come to the Buddha and say, we were not able to convince him, so we've come to you. They didn't just rush to the authority figure. So um, maybe there's some something, some depth there. All right. Well, there's much more to explore in this sutta. So let me just, um, uh, Ying will tell us a bit about how to prepare for Tuesday. Yeah. And I'll just say uh, that uh, as part of the extending the uh, a few words about uh, Debbie's question, and we can also read this with some uh, maybe culture uh, lenses. That is, uh, the ancient India, there may be still quite a lot of this uh, devotional culture uh, where the Buddha is the Buddha. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a particular authority that comes with it, and maybe kind of... Uh, uh, prominent uh, in people's mind and heart as well. 
And so, you know, as we read the uh, read the suttas, uh, maybe that's another perspective to bring in. And so, for this um, next class, before the next class, I'd invite you to read the similes out loud, maybe even, and just the repeating the words and see how does that land for you as you're doing this repeatedly. And there may be some emotions coming up with it and maybe some understanding coming along with it. And read the first part of the sutta that um, we've been talking about. And also, on the next class, we'll be talking about the simile of the snake and the raft. So please go ahead and read those two um, similes as well and maybe practice with them and see how, how, they, how they land in your practice. Um, and I think that'll, that'll be what I say. Uh, I see uh, uh, Sabitri has the hand up. Yeah. Um, real quick, I think it's helpful when I read the suttas, when I come across the words that, I, that are unfamiliar, like the names, um, can you just say some of the key names so I can hear it? And then that'll help me when I read it because I'm I struggle like Biku or what, what? I don't know with these draw uh, names and just let me hear it for a second. Yeah. Maybe replace them with the names that you can <laughs> relate to. <laughs> we don't know who they are really. <laughs> But we'll do that. We'll do that as we go. We'll, we'll keep using the words bhikkhu and, and aritta to because there are little differences of pronunciation and they'll start to stick over time. It does take time because they're different. Yes. Thank you. And I'll just um, end today's class maybe at, uh, with a dedication of a merit. Um, so, so whatever um, form, discovery, benefits and that you accrued for today's um, practice and study. May it benefit your heart and your mind and your body. May this benefit ripple out into the world. May all beings know wisdom. May all beings know love. May all beings be peaceful. Thank you all. And please uh, unmute if you like, and just to say bye to everybody. Bye, everyone. See you bye, too. Everyone. Bye. See you next bye. week. Bye. Bye.